Mama, what's a podcast? Well, it's when a group of men love their opinions very much. Hi, everyone. Welcome back for season two of Feminist Talk Religion. 2020, as you know, has not been easy, and we are here to talk it through with you. Our first episode engages the impact of COVID-19 on the Academy. I myself am recording this intro from my home in Los Angeles County, which just declared it illegal to gather with anyone outside of one's home. Despite the loneliness and the fear and the anger and the sadness, I do remain grateful for spaces such as FTR for making it possible for at least some kind of community to continue. Today, we've got three guest speakers, Susan Williver, Amy DeRogatis, and Mary Foskett. Before we dive in, however, I'd like to introduce you to a fourth new voice, that of our new co-host, Nayara Leo. Hi, I'm Nayara Leo, and I'm one of your new hosts for this season. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Iowa, where I study religions of the ancient Mediterranean, and I'm fascinated by early Christian stories about women and how they shed light on ancient women's actual lived experiences. As a feminist scholar, I also like to question and deconstruct the common idea of infallibility of texts, including biblical ones, and to discuss issues of authority, leadership, and agency in the early church. I come from Brazil, I also studied in Portugal, and my education has always been informed by issues of colonialism and race. So I'm also interested in discussing issues of belonging, longing, and ethnicity in religion. But before I decided to study religion, I worked for almost 10 years as a journalist and a professional writer, so I'm particularly excited to be part of this podcast as an initiative that promotes conversations across the field and potentially with people outside of the academia too. I've only been in the United States for a year, so I'm also glad to connect with other feminist scholars through FSR and get to talk to them about their work. Today we have three guests. One of them, Susan Williver, is a doctoral candidate in religion and society at Drew University, who also works as a lecturer and hospital chaplain in New Jersey. Our second guest is Amy DeRogatis, professor of religion and American culture at Michigan State, who has been incorporating responses to COVID-19 in her current research project on religion and sound. And finally, we'll talk to Mary Foskett, Kale Professor of Religion at Wake Forest University, who inspired us to think through the chaos with compassion and humanity. Let's start with Susan. Hi, Susan. Welcome to our podcast. We're very happy to have you here talking to us today. And we have some guiding questions, but mostly we just want to know how was your experience during the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. It's fun to be a part of this conversation. So I appreciate you, Nayara and Sarah, facilitating and negotiating this kind of conversation. So I would say, like you had said, like many of us in academia, different phases have kind of different intersecting roles, like doing my own doctoral work and then adjuncting. And then also to really pay most of my bills, I also work at a state psychiatric hospital. So COVID has been a real experience out here on the East Coast in the greater New York City area. I'm located in New Jersey. Okay, so let's see where 
where I could start. I mean, I think one thing that was almost instantly overwhelming was just the abundance of information and processing of that information. I think institutions and I mean, society in general, and all of us, and I think in our communities, probably in our households, we're all just trying to process the information and then discern like how to move forward. And so I think instantly one thing that just comes to mind was just like the constant receiving of emails from just the inner the multiple institutions like the places I teach and then the places where I'm a student and then the hospital and then you're getting the headlines all the time um, just to kind of like and questions about the severity of COVID and the virus and so I think that was something that I just remember being like at first there was like this adrenaline adrenaline rush almost like okay this is like sociologically always like I'm always like intellectually interested in kind of the sociological analysis of things that are going on but pretty quickly it was kind of overwhelming. Yeah what was that like you know going back and forth between teaching um, then you know working at the hospital and then also being a student yourself what was that kind of negotiation like for you? Almost immediately. I mean, I have a, an incredible advisor and support team where I'm working on my doctorate at Drew University. And I think that they know that my work at the hospital is also kind of a sense of advocacy work. And it's really important to like, it was important to be present in this time of crisis. So they were really supportive of that. So almost immediately, like the progress that I was making on my own personal scholarship had to go on hold, but trying to just stay and keep those kinds of lines of communication with my advising team open just to kind of not lose that in the midst of this time and also not knowing how long the pandemic was going to last and every day was taking a different turn. So that was one thing that definitely um, happened almost immediately. And then it was you know, really interesting. I think you kind of enter each institution and with the dynamics that they're doing. I mean, a lot of I think something that is just my background in clinical psychology and as a therapist, like I think I often like that really informs my pedagogy and and how I approach the classroom um, was just wanting to kind of across the different places, across the hospital and at the school where I was teaching, just wanting to myself try to stay in communication and offer any kind of information I had along the way and to be transparent. And so I think that was kind of a strategy I tried to take on in the multiple spaces. And then there is this kind of element of gathering information from different locations to kind of create a more holistic picture of like what is going on in our world and using that as a way of kind of trying to understand the struggles of, of the student body, the students that I was working with, as well as the clientele that I was working with. I find it interesting that you have it, you know, you're saying how your work in, you know, psychology and caregiving informs your pedagogy. I find it so interesting that, you know, you're, you're focusing on these, you know, other souls out there and you haven't named that you, you had COVID. Yes. Uh, I know. So let's add that in the mix. You've got a foot in three different spaces and you got COVID. What was that like? Yeah. So I feel like, I don't know what the best word is, luck, to feel lucky, to feel blessed, to just complete great gratitude that I didn't have to, I had a case where I didn't have to be hospitalized. I mean, so I think first and foremost, just to name that, I mean, I was home sick for like 10 to 14 days and then took another week off to rest. 
in some sense, that removed me from the hospital setting. But I felt like everything was so disrupted for the semester and for the students that I kind of just kept that to myself and just kind of tried to plow through as much as I could. So it was like, I was pretty tired and like only told like a few family members and friends that I was sick. I mean, so that they were keeping a pulse on me to make sure I was okay. But otherwise, just to like manage my own energy level and recovery process, I had a few people checking in and then I would usually have to like get online for teaching stuff. Sometimes, sometimes it was just an hour or two, like every day or every other day. But then there was days when I would be putting in like 10 to 14 hours. And that was, it was really exhausting. I think there was just like, it was kind of like when you're just at your limit anyway, like at the end of the semester, or you've just got a lot going on where you just kind of power through. And so it's like, looking back on it, it feels pretty foggy. (laughs) I think I'm able to say that, like it speaks to maybe the severity of my case of how sick I was or not sick I was, but it was really draining. And I think the exhaustion really endured through the whole end of the semester, just because it's like, you know, now I have this experience of what it's like being sick. I can, I understand like what people are fearing in a certain way. Well, having, you know, been sick yourself and like you said, help you understand better uh, how things might've been for the students as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how you were flexible with the students, like how you adapted to make the situation less stressful for them? Sure, yeah. And I know that educators of all levels, like from, you know, I know a lot of people were trying to be creative and responsive to those things. So I think r- right away, there's this kind of reality that like people are going to have different levels of access to technology. Pretty quickly, it became clear that like people are going to have different schedules that they're managing a lot. Students are caregiving for their children, for their parents, for their spouses. Some are going to work full-time. Some are working more than they were working before, and some are working less. I try my best, I think, every semester to kind of encourage students to, like, be in conversation as not to offer counseling, but I think for them to be able to like just stay open in communication if they have physical or mental health concerns that come up for themselves. So I had already kind of known some people were had struggled with some things. So I think it was kind of like I would open, sometimes I would have discussion boards like just that were quick check-ins just for people to express like how they were experiencing COVID. And that's kind of a way of like just maintaining a communal dialogue. And it gives me a sense of like where people are at So I think one strategy I really had was just trying to keep people engaged in whatever format that I could keep them engaged through emails, through discussion boards and things like that. So I think just recognizing those things. And so then my strategy for keeping in communication was then also to like try to make the course adaptable across all those different ways that people were having to face their life. And so, you know, I made the decision to not have required Zoom meetings, right? And I did get some, you know, several students said, like, I wish we could have had our our conversations. I wish we would have done the video calls and we could have had some conversations. And I hear that. And I think, would I have done that differently? I'm not sure. I think it would have been a really rich conversation. I I don't want to minimize that. But then also, I think it could have created a wider gap for the students who couldn't, either for scheduling reasons or technological reasons or health reasons, get in and participate on those things. So I think those were the kinds of things you know, I think we, we all were likely juggling um, and just had to kind of make decisions within the moment and hope for the best, hope to facilitate some learning 
I think it was important for me and what I said to my students was I want to help you get the credit you've already invested in financially you've already invested your time in and I want you to finish that so you can get the credit that you deserve kind of just renaming those messages over and over Interesting what you just mentioned that some students, for example, were uh, missing having this contact with the other students and with yourself because everyone was basically isolated at home. And for some people, like studying and, you know, keep doing stuff from school might have helped them feel more like still connected to the world outside. But at the same time, it can be overwhelming for others. So I completely understand when you say that we as, you know, TAs in my case or teachers were just figuring out things as they go. And we were not able at that moment to have all the right answers. Definitely. So looking, looking forward to next semester, we've had some experience now with online teaching. It was the first time for many of us. How are you preparing for, for the fall semester? Will you be teaching in person or online? Like, what are the lessons that you are bringing from this period uh, that we've been through? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one thing that, like, the, one of the first things that jumps out is just to, it's like I will do a certain amount of reflection and work and put effort into thinking that I'm presenting a clear message about how this is going to be approached. But then you realize just because of the ways that the online, what's the word, like the different mediums, like whether it be Moodle or Blackboard or Canvas or things like that, how they are created. And then how, if I create it, I think in one format, such as on my full screen computer, but then how that translates to the phone, how one thing I really learned was how information got lost just in the structuring of well, I gosh, I'm struggling with like what the best way to say it is. Just like how to present information on the medium that's, that I'm using and making sure that they translate across the different kind of technological spaces. I don't know if that makes sense. That's something that I need to put some time into. Like if I'm naming instructions in one space, if someone opens it on their phone, are they going to see that? And I think just part of that is just initial orientation and just checking in and making sure like early on, right? Like I thought I did some of those checks and then I realized in one of my classes, a few students either like were themselves bombarded by too many emails. So didn't see the instructions or like only looked at it on their phone. And so then they missed certain things. So I think that's my own relationship. I think with the, um, with the technology that I need to work on refining just hearing you speak, Susan, I, what I'm sort of left with and what I hope our listeners get from this, especially, you know, those who are either not in academia or are in academia as students or parents of students, is that there are so many different moving parts and then moving parts within those moving parts and then even more moving parts within the within the within. It's sort of like a turtles all the way down kind of a situation where, you know, you're, you're talking about on, on, in your space of teaching, you're not teaching students who are 18 to 22 years old in sort of like a confined setting where um, being a student is their role in life. You are teaching students on 
all ends of the spectrum who have full lives outside of being at the college. And that's something that you are needing to negotiate. And then on top of that, different campuses have different types of media that they use to give information. And, you know, you need to tailor a course that was never thought of as being online to online, but so much is dependent upon student accessibility in their own lives and the the media that you're being told to use. And you have to negotiate those students who are able to have certain types of conversations and, you know, in terms of time and accessibility with students who aren't able to have conversations at a certain time in their own world. And so I think, you know, I really hope that what you're saying is in terms of the care that you're putting into trying to negotiate all of this at once is being heard that, you know, on the professor side, all of this internal negotiating complexity isn't, I don't know if people are seeing it. And so I'm hoping that for those who are listening, they could really internalize just how many moving parts there are and how much, you know, scholars like you are really trying to do due diligence and and are thinking about all the moving parts all the time and are getting ready for you know Nayara I know you're saying perhaps we've we've gone through the hardest part but we're still having to think constantly and we're still having to try to plan 10 steps ahead knowing that the movement may have to change at any moment so I just want to say thank you, Susan, for all the work that you're doing. And, and I really hope that listeners are hearing how much you're having to think about. Yeah, thank you, Susan, for being with us. Thank you for sharing your, your story and your reflections. It was my pleasure. It's always helpful to just be in conversation and I think process that out loud. And so I appreciate you guys creating this space. So now we're going to talk with Amy DeRogatis, a professor of religion and American culture at Michigan State University. Dr. DeRogatis' research focuses on the multiple ways that religious groups, people, and communities in the United States translate religious beliefs into embodied practices. Together with Isaac Weiner from Ohio State University, she co-directs an amazing project called American Religious Sounds Project, in which American religious life is documented through field recordings, interview and oral stories, and also is shown in digital exhibition. But recently, in face of COVID-19, they started an open call for people to submit their own recordings, which showed how the religious landscape has been changing in the face of the pandemic in the US. You can access the digital archive and the digital exhibitions on www.religiosounds.osu.edu. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our podcast. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what is the Religious Sounds Project and what kind of sounds you collect? In the most general terms, the project aims to investigate the plurality of American religious life through paying attention to sounds. And up until uh, the pandemic, the way in which we approach this project is that we work within our own communities. So it started off being very much within mid-Michigan and around the Columbus, Ohio area, 
working with teams of faculty, staff, digital humanities librarians, graduate students, undergraduates, and documenting uh, sounds of religion in the places in which we lived and uh, working with community members to think about what sorts of sounds come out of their religious practices. We began to expand nationally and while we were doing that, uh, we developed some procedures and we wrote a very comprehensive guide to how to work within communities, how to use our protocols around data collection, but also around metadata and how to categorize things and ran training sessions for the people who were part of the geographic expansion. And all of that kind of came to a halt during the pandemic because we had stay-at-home orders. So what we did is uh, we continued a lot of our work that we have been doing virtually. So uh, in order to co-direct this project, I've been working on Zoom for six years or five years to have hold meetings and to work through our research project. So we continued with some of the stuff, like we're partnering with the Smithsonian on a traveling exhibit and we're putting together an art exhibit and we are coming up with protocols for long-term preservation of our sounds in a uh, digital archive that's housed at MSU. All those things could continue, but the actual work of collecting sounds could not. So we pivoted really quickly to crowdsourcing. This is not something that we had ever done before. But we decided it was an experimental moment to open up our project to anybody who wanted to record the sounds of either them practicing religion or going out and hearing religion practiced in their communities. So we had to, you know, obviously build something that people could submit on, um, but we did a little bit of advertising and then we just let it go. And it caught on pretty quickly. To date, I think we have about 125 submissions. Wow. And they're very, they're diverse. They're uh, in quality, in uh, topic, and in all kinds of different ways. It's impressive the number of submissions you already have. Thanks. Uh, and I think um, what's so interesting, too, is, you know, we were just chatting about how much COVID has sort of shut down various aspects of our lives as, you know, academicians and personal spaces. Yet at the same time, in that shutting down, COVID has also forced us to find other spaces to open up in terms of creativity. And so it sounds like you sort of opened up this other way of thinking about religion and sound. And so I'm, can you tell us a little bit more about that, what that was like, you know, in the midst of everything being shut off, what was it like to find this opening to reach out to other people? Did it come naturally or was there a lot of back and forth to, to come to this idea? Well, it's, it's, so there are two things to say about that. The first is that uh, we had from the get-go really, uh, struggled with the question of crowdsourcing with our uh, project and um, had always kind of, every time the, com the question came up, we decided no, because we wanted to be so careful about uh, representation and making sure that there's all kinds of quality controls with the submissions that we receive. And so 
it's funny to me that we were able to very quickly say, we've got to try crowdsourcing now. Like it just seemed like the right thing to do at this unusual moment. And I'm really glad we did it because I think obviously, um, you know, what we lose in quality control of some of the recordings and also maybe uh, some extra work on our side of double, triple checking how people define uh what it is they're submitting, we make up for in really hearing what lived religion is like Mm -hmm. during a pandemic. But also that there's some things, um, some of the submissions have really prompted us to think about what we're hearing uh, during this kind of experiential time of, of religious practice and to think more broadly about the opportunities that shelter in place provide for so many people. I mean, I think the question of religious authority and who has the right to speak, who is heard, who is a leader, we're really starting to hear a lot of interesting things happening in religious practice. People taking the lead in religious rituals. arguing about who should be muted and not muted. Um, Some of these like very basic questions about agency and authority within religious practice are really being played with in some interesting ways. Also bringing religion into the domestic sphere. So for many religious practices, it's always been in the domestic sphere, but highlighting that now and saying, you know, how does practicing religion make sense? in your own space and how much of that is uh, becomes very individual or how much of that a new way of being in community. And finally, um, for me, one of the things that I think a lot about is accessibility and the way in which religious participation and practice is becoming uh, so much more accessible to so many people now that they have the opportunity to do it from their own homes and also to participate maybe with putting the mute off or turning the camera off or all these different ways in which people can do things that maybe weren't possible or they didn't feel welcome in religious communities. So Speaking for myself and what I'm most familiar with is uh, ways in which religious communities can provide real obstacles for people with disabilities. And I'm not just talking about uh, churches that uh, have stairs and cannot afford to put in an elevator. I mean, that's just basic, right? That's a very basic accessibility issue that is, you know, getting resolved right now. Mm-hmm. Um, or people who can't go on retreats because they aren't accessible. Well, that's getting resolved. But also people with disabilities just not feeling welcome in spaces mm-hmm. because of the way in which they respond to religious practices or parents of kids with disabilities not feeling welcome in places where there's a certain way of behaving or a way of participating that is not open to other modes of uh, participation. And I think some of the submissions that we're hearing are really helping us to hear religion on their own terms and uh, what kinds of sounds are 
included when you allow people to be their, their authentic selves in their authentic religious spaces. That to me is a really interesting and important takeaway. You know, uh, makes me feel like this is what religion should sound like in the future. So Amy, you were just telling us about this, maybe like reconfiguration of religious spaces and religious practices. And I thought it was very interesting because maybe like for me, at least, in, you know, in a quick look at it, I would think that the churches were closed, like mostly because people were not able to gather. So people were, you know, less inclined to continue their religious routines and practices. But from what you're telling us, it's actually giving opportunity to people to engage in different and ways, right? We're hearing a lot of different things, so I don't want to overstate it. Um, but it is true that I think this is a moment where we're hearing a lot of experimentation mm -hmm. and a lot of people being able to make religious practice their own in their own spaces. I sort of, what you're saying is, um, first I, I just have a quick yes or no question. Is what I'm hearing you say is, did you question crowdsourcing before COVID and said no, and then COVID came up and you're like, okay, well now we, we have to do it. Is that, am I hearing you right? Yes. We had decided not to do crowdsourcing. Okay. And then we, we decided when just for this particular moment to mm -hmm. do sourcing for COVID. So we still okay. have people who are doing our geographic expansion in other places across the country and they're kind of shifting to meet that. But this is yeah. the only crowdsource thing that we do. Okay. So yeah, I just wanted to get that clarification that the idea had come up, but it was sort of really COVID that pushed you to to decide, okay, that we this is this is life right now. This is where we're headed. But it's so interesting hearing you talk about this and hearing sort of like, you know, think about your question, Nayara, about um, or, or your pondering of. On the one hand, we sort of have thought about COVID again as the shutting down. Um, those who find themselves going to spaces of worship might not be going anymore. Yet, on the other hand, perhaps for some, it's actually opening up the door even more. And I'm thinking about, you know, my experience in quarantine with my girlfriend's family. Um, we're all Jewish. And, you know, I, I was with them for about a month. And, you know, they're from New York City, and they're members of a, of a synagogue there. But Friday night services, it's not exactly a, an opportune time, you know, in American culture to be going to services um friday night you know it's sometimes you just want to do other things and but we were in quarantine we were stuck all together in a home and so they would put on the services every friday night we would get together as a family and we would watch the service together and i'm thinking about the sound that would have been picked up had we recorded it because you would have heard you would have heard eating for one thing. And I'm thinking about the sounds even now, like I'm, you know, in LA and I'm right by LAX and there's planes overhead, but you know, we would have like chips and guac. And so I'm thinking about, you know, yeah. sound that you would hear while the services was going. And, you know, I'm also thinking about disability. You know, my, my girlfriend's little brother is severely disabled, but he lives in a home and he's unable to be taken out of that home right now. His, his home is, is strictly quarantined. So you wouldn't have heard him be his full authentic self in the surface, but you would have heard his other little brother start crying that his brother with disabilities is not there. 
with mm -hmm. us. Yeah. Um, so just all of these parts of the communal space when thinking about sound come out so much more. It's so human in a way. Yeah. Is a phone dinging during a service a religious sound? Yes, it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Is your cat meowing during, uh, you know, uh, Buddhist chanting uh, religious sound? Yeah, it is because it's happening while you are practicing religion or in the context of religion or in a religious community. How would you define a religious sound? What is a so, religious sound? So typically we think, you know, for our research team, we have community context content. So if it comes from a community that identifies as religious, and here's my kitty, if, it, it, if the content is specifically religious, so like, you know, a protest, Black Lives Matter protest where person speaking is using religious speech, or if the context is religious, so often that's about space, like if it's in a space, voting machines in a mosque, that's a religious sound because it's in the context of a religious space. So there, I mean, you know, you can imagine we argue about this all the time. This has been like, you know, this is the question, what is religion, right? So what is religion? Yeah. And that those are the three kind of categories that we came up with for our team. So you all agree on what a religious sound is? I think we, yeah, I think that we've agreed that those are the sounds that we can all get behind as religious sounds that we can attach metadata to and put on a digital platform and then let other people go through our website and say, yeah, I agree with this, but I don't agree with that. I mean, when we're working with communities, we go back to the communities and say, okay, you know, we came in and we uh, recorded coffee hour. And they might say, uh, well, that's not what we think of as religious sound. We think of preaching as a religious sound. And so then we have to, you know, go back and forth and talk. And usually we say, okay, it sounds like we need to have two recordings. And we'll explain that with our recording and say, this came directly from the community, but this is also a sound that we think is religious. Yeah, so it's an ongoing process, but as a project, those are the three areas that we're really looking at. Community, content, context. Besides religious services, what kind of sounds do people share? We've had people submit sounds of individual religious practices like meditation, uh, chanting. We've had some singing. We've had individuals who are religious practitioners talking about practices. So mm -hmm. we've had some just rituals that people have participated in. But honestly, the overwhelming majority are religious services. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the way that a lot of people have engaged with this particular project. That's what comes to mind for them is going online for religious service. It's not everything, but for the select group of people who decide to put the energy into recording and submitting, many, many are online services. And then the ambient noises around. I have sort of two intersecting, you know, follow-up questions to that. One is, are you finding folks from a, identifying from a particular tradition to be submitting more than others? Well, you know, I think that it, uh, follows some demographics, um, not just of 
religion in the United States, but also people who have the time and the energy to participate. But I'd say many of the recordings come from the Christian tradition. Protestantism is pretty represented. Uh, we have a ton of Baha'i recordings. Yes, and there's a good reason for that, because one of the beloved staff members at Michigan State University is Baha'i, and uh, she's just really happens to be interested in this project and getting Baha'is heard. Yeah. So, you know, we have like this over-representation, um, but yeah. that's, that's what crowdsourcing is, right? What a great way to say it, getting this tradition heard, right? That, that means so many things all in one, and it's so apropos for... But that's also a privileged position. Yes, yeah. Right? That's what I mean by, you know, it's, it's if not everybody wants to be heard, and not yeah. everybody uh, has the ability to be heard, the time, the energy, the technology. The safety. The, the safety, all of that. And, and that's a little bit easier to mitigate with the rest of our project where we have all kinds of lots of things in place to talk with people about what we're doing and describe what we're doing and to bring them in and it's different than crowdsourcing. Yeah. I mean, I think this is my second follow-up question. Um, and I'm thinking about... Oh, and some religious traditions don't want you to record. Right. Yeah. Right. That's right. Friday services. So yeah. not, you know, so there's that too. Or yeah. Indigenous religious traditions that are not comfortable with that, yeah. you know, and the question of who owns the sound. And yes. you know, we ask everybody to um, make sure that if it's not like a live stream thing, that's public. But if it's a private thing, you have to ask everyone if they're comfortable with it being recorded and shared. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. Like in the Jewish world, there's so many conversations right now about what constitutes work and, you know, is is pressing, you know, like play on Zoom or whatever on a recording work on Shabbat for some communities and, you know, exactly. what would record be like. But my second follow-up question is is related to what you were saying about, you know, like what, it, you know, what is sound, what is religious sound, what is religion? And I'm, I'm a little curious about the relationship in your work between those who might define their sound as religious and those who might define it as spiritual. And I'm wondering if you tap into that. So again, I'm thinking again of, you know, everything is positional and referential. You know, yes, I, I you know, frequented those Shabbat services on Friday, but, you know, it was a cultural moment more than a, I'm much more comfortable saying a cultural experience than a religious experience for that. And I would be more comfortable saying, oh, a walk in nature and recording myself walking and hearing and recording the, the sounds that I hear walking and submitting that as my religious moment. Are you thinking about those relationships or, or is it still sort of like, you know, it's, it's so difficult to tap into the, the intricacies of what is religion? Are you just saying, you know what, it's all religion, it's fine, let's just, let's just take it all. So with the COVID-19, we're accepting all submissions. And if you say it's a religious sound, and you know, you can explain it in one or two sentences, like I have a spiritual experience when I'm walking in nature, right on. I'm not, I mean, it's not my job to get in there and say, that's actually not religion. Do you have a, do you have a telephone number for that religion? You know, like that isn't the issue for us. And especially not with the COVID-19 stuff. I think that um, one of the things we try really hard to do, and if you go to our website and 
look through some of our archive or our gallery exhibits. We, uh, we try to be really playful. Does thinking about sound broaden the way you define religion? I mean, how is it different than reading a text or thinking about institutional space to think about sounds? And does that just reinforce your idea about uh, what religion is or does it help you to think more capaciously about what religion is? And different people have different answers to that. I mean, I'm not the definitional police. I mean, we came up with some broad categories that I find incredibly useful and workable after lots and lots and lots of conversations. But uh, admittedly, sometimes the sounds that our teams record in religious communities, the communities themselves, say that's actually not the religious sound that we want representing us on your website. And then, that, then we say, okay, let's do two sounds. <laughs> What, do you, what would you like to hear represented? I mean, and one, one thing I do in teaching is sometimes I ask people to think about what their favorite religious sound is and start from there. And then to kind of say, well, why did you, why do you always pick a hymn as a religious sound? You know, couldn't there be other sounds that are interesting and nostalgic and meaningful to you that aren't about singing, say, <laughs> you know? That's a long way of answering your question, but um, we are not particularly hung up on the line between spirituality and religion. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you were saying, Nayana, about, you know, the ethnographic approach, sort of letting people speak for themselves and, and then yeah. gathering information. But, you know, I have to say that uh, this project was not the main thing I was supposed to be doing this past semester. So while it is a big project for me and uh, takes up a lot of our time and we have full-time employees who work for us that we hire and manage and supervise at two different institutions, we've given out awards, Interpretive Scholars Awards, we have many advisory boards we're managing, we're partnering with the Smithsonian, we've got a lot going on, but that was not my main project this spring. My main project was completing a book about something totally different that was shut down because I wasn't able to go to archives. So yeah, uh, that, that may take us to a bit, uh, to step out of the project a little bit and ask you, how was it, you know, how is your personal experience during COVID, especially in the beginning of the pandemic when no one knew exactly what was going on and everyone was, absolutely lost and trying to do their best how that affected you you know as a person as a teacher as a scholar in all these roles that, that you have in your life some days i feel that i am not at all representative of a religious studies faculty member um, and then other days i think no 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 my my life and my story intersects with other people's in ways that maybe i can't always see but i was on sabbatical this semester and so I was not teaching, and I'm working on a book about a Mormon community in the early 19th century in Michigan called the Strangites. And I've been working on this for on and off for five-ish years, and finally, 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 I had a semester to really go to some of these archives that are in little places and get the stuff, and I was super excited to work on that. I live in Michigan, and so I'm in a state that shut down early. And uh, in my family, 
we made a decision about a week before the shutdown to quarantine. So by the end of February, we were in quarantine. And that's because um, my youngest child has Down syndrome. And I knew, even though there weren't studies out, I knew that he would be at a very high risk of not just contracting the disease, but that um, he has all kinds of factors that would mean that he would probably get sicker than other people. And I just was not up for having a fight for a ventilator with a person who I know would not get to the top of a priority list. You know, so we, we took him out of school, out of public school, early and quarantined. And then um, my daughter goes to Oberlin College and they came home pretty early too, mid-March. I taught at Oberlin for a year last year, a few <laughs> religion classes. Um, anyway, just, yeah, so I'm still following your story. Just wanted to say, so yeah. Sarah got us for Lingos. So she, yeah, she's an art history, religious studies, archaeology major. So she was supposed to be going to Greece this year. So oh, wow. they, uh, yeah, that's off. Um, so they shut down pretty early. So she came home early. Mm-hmm. And so I have one kid who's supposed to be doing online learning through the public school with an IEP, which is an individual educational plan that is in place for people who need extra accommodations. And immediately that was an emergency amendment said, we don't have, you know, we're not doing that. And then I had a college student coming home from a very intensive residential college to online learning. And then a spouse who was transitioning uh, in person to basically remote Zoom teaching. So it was wacky and wild. Turns out I am not a special ed teacher. Uh, also turns out that it's very intense to watch a college student try to do remote learning while you're trying to transition to remote learning <laughs> and seeing all the negatives. But it was, it was a tough time. It was tough. And I really feel like there are going to have to be some very hard conversations in the future in our profession after this crisis is over about the ways in which we talk to each other, the ways in which people who have to take care of others, you know, are not putting their work on the back burner. They are just trying to manage an untenable situation. I think that one of the harder things for me was being generous with some of my colleagues who were crowing on social media about how productive they've been over the last couple months, mm-hmm. um, it, without any sort of sense of the harm that that does other people. And I am saying this as somebody who does not need promotion, is done with promotion and tenure. You know, I don't have to be hyper productive, but I saw that happen. And I thought that was remarkably ungenerous and unkind. You're in a position to be productive during a pandemic, and that's your position. But you know, crowing about it on social media, I don't think is very helpful for anybody. And moving forward, I think that this is going to be the real work of figuring out how to be equitable for people who are in very differing situations. Most people did not accept jobs thinking that the public schools would be closed. Most people didn't accept jobs thinking that going to work could put the 
their health in jeopardy or the people they live with in jeopardy. You know, most people didn't think that their job would be on the line because universities are worried about not spending down their endowment. I mean, I just, you know, it is a really, really tough time. And I've always, I've always felt like who I am deeply influences the way I teach my classes and the questions I ask in my scholarship. Like I've, that's always, I think it's true of everybody, but uh, speaking for myself, I've always been very aware of that. And I think just now even more, it's just becoming more and more obvious. So it's tough. Thank you. Yeah. I think that, you know, what you just said really ties into the conversation we were having with Susan right before, you know, we were chatting with you of just, there are so many moving parts right now. And, you know, professors are human and our humanity is really showing right now. It's a tough time. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to not, for myself, I'm a big planner. <laughs> and I, the way in which I've been able to move through my career, especially after my son was born, was that I've had a huge network of people who have supported our family. You know, we've always had college students in our house helping out. We've always had kind of things within the community that helped us. And so to have that taken away makes me very aware of how much I've needed that community just to do my job, you know, just to be able to go to work, just to be able to concentrate, just to be able to know that my kid is safe. And we will have none of that moving forward in the fall. And so it's a real challenge to uh, imagine what that's going to look like. Thank you for, for sharing these reflections and for being so, so honest. One of the reasons why we thought about having this episode was exactly to show how we're struggling and you know how we're managing everything, how we are dealing with these unthinkable challenges. So it's really it's been really nice to hear your perspective on this. Yes, thank you so much. No, oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for being with us today. This was an amazing interview. I'm really fascinated by your project and I thought you were also very generous, sharing your personal perspective on things too. So can you tell our listeners how they can hear the religious sounds and how they can contribute to, to the project? The best way to do that is to type in to your server, religioussounds.osu.edu. And then up in right on the home page it says submit call for sounds and you can just hyperlink right there and it will bring you to the instructions and the place where you can you know deposit a religious sound so the home page for the whole project is religioussounds.osu.edu and then to participate in the COVID-19 crowdsource call for sounds, you can just hit the link. But I'd really love for people to come onto our home page and read about the project. There's all kinds of teaching resources if you want to use the project in your classes. We have opportunities 
We have um, a gallery of curated religious sounds, and then the archive is a listing of all of the sounds that we've recorded, and we have some digital tools for visualization and mapping. That's great, thank you so much. We'll definitely spread the word, share the information. Yeah, thank you for joining us, this was wonderful. Thanks so much, it was great to talk to you guys. So now we're going to move forward to our last conversation on today's episode with Mary Foskett. Mary teaches at Wake Forest University and focuses especially on New Testament studies with a special attention on gender and Asian American culture. She will share with us how she experienced the anti-Asian American sentiment during the COVID-19 pandemic and also how she's been supporting students and reflecting on her role as a mentor and as an educator. Welcome, Mary. I'm really glad to be here. I'd like this to be as much of a, you know, natural, flowing kind of a conversation. So I want to open up space to you to sort of introduce yourself and in doing so perhaps tell us a little bit about how COVID has been impacting you, whether personally, professionally, both. Um, I'll just pass the torch to you and see where this goes. Okay, sure. Thanks. So my name is Mary Foskett and um, I've been teaching at Wake Forest University in the Department for the Study of Religions for just about 23 years. I'll be celebrating my anniversary in mid-August. Um, I teach in the area of New Testament studies and I teach graduate students but also prim and primarily undergraduate students. So love being there, have been there my entire career since graduating with my PhD from Emory University. So to answer your question about how COVID has been impacting me, I'll say it has been impacting me the way it's been impacting everybody, which is in a, in a pretty comprehensive way. On a personal level, it uh, has meant having my son come back from college and be living with us for the last several months and trying to support him while he's been experiencing uh, what this pandemic is like for him as a college student. My husband and I have been working at home and so it's, you know, uh, divvying up the working from home space. Uh, we also have three elders who are here in town with us. So we've been paying close attention to how to support them. In particular, my mother, who really depends upon me a lot. So on a personal level, that has all been looming large in our lives. But I would also say that an another aspect of how this has impacted us personally, especially uh, me and my son, um, is the kind of xenophobia and the anti-Asian and Asian American racism that has been a part of this pandemic, that has been a part of our lives, a part of our concern. We're both Asian American. And that has been an unwanted, unwelcome, and unsurprising facet of this whole experience. So that's a, that's a piece of it too. Of course, professionally, it's impacted me in the way that it has impacted faculty across the country trying to do the best job that we can for our students, trying to think about what it means to be teaching in a time of pandemic, trying to, you know, bring the best of ourselves to our students and learning new ways to try to do that. And that, that has been a huge 
process in and of itself. And I never did online education before. That was new to me to be doing online teaching starting in the spring semester and now gearing up for the fall. So I've been working really hard to learn a lot. Yeah, so you're really in it, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. in lots of different ways. I have a few follow-up questions on sort of both ends of the personal and the academic side. And I don't know if you're comfortable answering this, but have you or your son experienced anything directly with regards to the xenophobia that you've named? So in order to answer that question, I should frame it a little bit, because although the pandemic has really exposed this, this level of xenophobia and anti-Asian, anti-Asian American uh, racism in this country, it's not true that this is something new, right? It's just been exposing it, like so much that the pandemic has exposed. And I would say that I have had a heightened concern for Asian Americans and Asians in this country since the 2016 election. Mm. And that, because there's been so much xenophobia, so much explicit, unabashed racism across the country since the 2016 campaign Mm. and, and moving forward. So, and I have had experiences since then, just here locally in my own city, uh, encountering people in shops checking out at, you know, checkout counters and, and things like that. I haven't had a lot of direct negative encounters since the pandemic began. I'd say it's mostly, I did have an encounter early in the pandemic when I was, when we were still able to travel and I was up in Washington, D.C. and uh, noticed someone who was looking at me in a very ugly, suspicious way on the D.C. metro Mm-hmm. And it really took me a few moments to realize what was going on. But apart from that, I haven't had something that felt very direct. What I have experienced is a concern, especially early on when we were unsure whether we should be wearing masks or not. I was very aware that as an Asian American woman, that wearing a mask might draw attention to me in a way that would bring negative, you know, negative responses from people. I was, you know, afraid of during the allergy season of coughing in public and things like that. And my son and I talked about that several times. So uh, that sense of discomfort and a sense of being at risk mm-hmm. is mostly how I would characterize what we've experienced. I'm curious about and grateful for something that you said a little bit earlier, which is that The xenophobia has already been here. It's just that we're seeing it more. And in seeing it more, perhaps we're realizing that it's always been there. So in that sense, would you call that a silver lining to sort of, I don't know, have it it not be sort of swept under the rug in the same way? Does it feel like perhaps there's some sense of productivity in being able to say, hey, this was always here, but now you see it. And perhaps now we could talk about it in a way that I couldn't before? I think I, I might frame it as a silver lining if I felt assured that the majority of Americans were recognizing it now. That, that is unclear to me. I see. Um, I do think it is making more visible for those who want to see um, something that has been there 
um, for generations and generations, but is usually left uh, invisible mm -hmm. to those who don't want to see it. Yeah, it actually, it reminds me very much of, and I show my students this clip all the time, but um, Sarah Silverman was, uh, well, I mean, she's always being interviewed, but she was being <laughs> interviewed at, at one point, and, and of course, you know, her Jewishness comes up quite a bit, and anti-Semitism and experiences therein. And I believe it was with uh, Pierce Morgan. And she said something to the effect of everyone hates Jews. And, and he said, do they though? Like, do they really, do you feel like you are hated? And she said, well, sure. And she said, but at the same time, no one likes blatant anti-Semitism more than Jews because they can finally say, see, it's there. It's not just a gas in the air, but mm -hmm. which is a very sort of poignant way of putting it. It's not just a gas in the air anymore, but um, mm -hmm. it didn't seem within the interview that he even heard that. So I'm, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying in terms of it's not just a gas in the air. It's not just under the rug, but at the same time, not everyone is even still willing to see it when it seems far more blatant than it was before. Right, or to think that it matters if they do see it. Right, yeah. To understand the significance of it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to switch gears just a little bit and go to, you know, what it's been like for you at Wake Forest. Wake Forest, and, and, and of course you can say more about this, but Wake is a small liberal arts college. About 7,000 students, including grad students. And the so, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be an academic at a school like that in terms of research and teaching and how COVID has played a part in a school such as Wake that cares very much about both research mm -hmm. and teaching? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I would say I don't think we're alone in this regard. I, I don't think we'd want to admit this, but... The truth is that teaching really has, has taken the forefront of our time and attention since we had to uh, leave campus in mid-March. There's been so much energy put towards first to kind of moving to remote teaching and getting through the spring semester. The overwhelming majority of us had not ever had any experience before in online teaching. So that was, a, that was just a huge amount of effort and energy. But as soon as we wrapped up the spring term, we started thinking about the fall. And to Wake Forest's credit, Wake Forest has really put a lot of institutional energy and uh, money into making training available to us on campus. I've uh, had tremendous amount of leadership by the director of our Center for the Advancement of Teaching, Betsy Berry, who is also a religious studies scholar as well. But she's done a great job in kind of leading this entire kind of forward motion towards uh, quality online education at Wake Forest. Um, and that's not just, that it doesn't mean that everyone's teaching online in the fall. We have some faculty who are going to be teaching face-to-face, -face, some who are teaching in a blended medium and some who are teaching remotely, but we're also aware that we don't know what the fall will bring and we need to be prepared in case we need to all go remote again. Okay. So the university has been gearing up for and has started implementing a peer-to-peer -peer training program for almost 100% of our faculty. 
which is which I feel really good about because I think it's it's going to help us deliver a better education online than we would otherwise. So that has taken up a lot of our time, and for good reason. I don't. I think that makes sense. At the same time, for many many weeks, our library was completely closed. We've had very limited access to our offices. And so carrying on research has been, has been difficult. So on one hand, we've had to put our energy into teaching for very good reasons, but we also have, as you know, uh, writing and research commitments, and it's, it's been difficult to keep that going at the, at the same pace, especially the pace we would expect over the summer. I mean, has Wake Forest made any sort of announcement about a change in expectation and a, and a shift in commitment? I mean, are, are you still being evaluated the same way in COVID as you were pre-COVID? So there's been very good conversation for a good while now about making adjustments, both in teaching evaluation, especially for last spring. All of our, on the Renolda campus, all of our tenure track faculty were granted an additional year on the tenure clock, just automatically, if they wanted to not, if they didn't want to accept that, that was something they could bring up, but they were automatically granted that. And departments have had conversations about how to best support each other, support each other and recognize that the kind of research end of productivity may be different. So those conversations have been ongoing. I'd like to hear more about the, what is it, peer-to-peer? Is it a one-on-one sort of... So, so it was a um, it began with a training a group of I think it was sixty four faculty who have done intense education and then they in turn then lead peer mentoring groups of their own. So you have the the first kind of group who are trained and then they train. Uh, a cohort. Each faculty member trains a cohort, and that's how you end up training almost your faculty. How are you feeling about going into the fall? Well, in addition to uh, doing the peer-to-peer training that all the faculty at Wake Forest, and my course begins next week, um, I've just finished a six-week online training course that was called COOL for Camp on Online Learning, and it was led by Four women working in higher education it had about had more than 200 participants in it, and it was a fantastic experience. I would say that on one hand, I'm apprehensive about the fall because I'm still putting my courses together and still thinking that through, and there's just a lot more work I have to do before those courses will be ready. On the other hand, something really interesting happened during my experience of this six-week course, and that was that at first I was just feeling a little overwhelmed, thinking about all the kinds of digital tools I could be using and uh, thinking about the mechanics, and, and that really can be quite overwhelming. But what I found along the way, which was a surprise and, a, and really a gift, was I discovered just opportunities to really reflect very deeply on why I teach and what I love about teaching and what it is that I most want to accomplish in any given course with my students. And so I really came away from the experience uh, really renewed as a teacher 
even though I still feel nervous about the technology and the newness of doing for the first time, two courses online from start to finish, that, that is really new. But I do feel really enlivened about teaching. You know, when you, when you teach online, it just makes you have to be much more intentional and it forces you to make visible right now in a positive sense, what is often left invisible. Uh, because in, in online learning, you in teaching, you are so much more transparent. And you can, you can observe, you can see what's happening with every student in a way that you don't when you're teaching face-to-face, or at least, at least in the, tr- the traditional way of teaching face So that's not to say that I think online learning is better than teaching face-to-face. It is to say that I have learned so much more this summer about teaching and learning than I ever anticipated. And that I think is all to the good. Hmm. So what was it, you know, that you came out with in terms of, you know, your thoughts on why it is you do what you do in the classroom or what your overall teaching goals are? What, what were you left with? So I think, you know, I became much more aware of how, for me, teaching and learning is really about connection. And it's about journeying with students in a kind of shared experience. And I became aware that I I tend to think of my courses as a kind of narrative arc. And I think about where students are beginning and where we're going to go together how we're going to get there together, and how a sense of being connected to one another in that process, that shared process, is just really foundational for me as a teacher. I don't think I'm alone in that. I just think that I'm just much more aware of that now and um, have been thinking about how to shape my class in a way that that will really become a clear part of the experience, even online. And how did that experience change your relationship with your students? Like being at a small liberal arts college, which is very focused on, you know, personal attention to students. How has that been to you? I mean, how has it been transitioning or trying to transition, forging that kind of experience to an online modality? Yes. So I think, you know, again, my only experience has been the experience that I gained in the spring. And the advantage that I had in in that first go around was that I already experienced a half semester with my students face-to-face, which meant that we had already forged relationships among ourselves. So students to students and my relationship with students and, and so forth. So that was a huge advantage because we already had that to build on when we moved to an online modality. But the way in which I tried to keep that going while we transitioned under tremendous stress for all of us, especially our students, was I shifted the syllabus. I um, checked in with them a lot both sync- through synchronous communication, synchronous sessions, through email, through other kinds of messaging. I really just 
tried to stay connected to them. I tried to be even more clear than I typically think I was about what I was asking them to do in class. I streamlined goals for each week, really tried to kind of get to oftentimes for a particular lesson. What is the one thing that I want students to take away from this? What is the what is the feedback that I'm trying to generate for myself, for them to give me, and for them to give to one another? So I was just much more intentional. And I also tried to be responsive to them and the circumstances in which they were learning and sometimes shifted the course around in order to be able to do that. And I think that was fairly successful based upon the feedback that I got from students. So I'm really trying to keep that at the forefront of my thinking for planning my fall courses, which will be online from start to finish. If anything, as I plan these courses, I'm thinking not just about the fact that these are online, for for me, the two courses I'm teaching will be online from start to finish, but I'm also really mindful that our students are living through a lot of trauma right now. That is very important for how I'm, I'm planning my courses. You know, I think it's important as much as schools are talking about technology and online teaching, we also need to think about the, stir- the circumstances through which our students are living. And that means, you know, we're not, just, we're not just teaching them online, we're teaching them online during a pandemic. And in the midst of all the inequities this pandemic has revealed, including racial injustice and oppression and uh, heightened awareness of uh, social movements forward like Black Lives Matter. So um, our students are living through a world that feels in many ways turned upside down for them in both tragic ways and also potentially hope-filled ways. You know, I think we all know our Black and Brown students have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and our Chinese students and other Asian, Asian American students are confronted by xenophobia and racism. There's been heightened incidences of domestic violence against women and children, you know, the unemployment, illness and death that our students are living through or seeing around them is the framework that I'm keeping in mind as I design my courses for the fall. I think that's a really wise note message to leave our listeners that, you know, this isn't just about switching technologies and modalities, but about recognizing the humanity within it all. So I just want to say thank you so much for your openness and your honesty. I think you've done an excellent job sort of leaving us with the complexity of the situation. I think that's a word that you use when you opened all of this up. It's just so complex. Yeah, I think you did a really great job of guiding us through some of those complexities and highlighting some of those complexities. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the fabulous work you're doing with this podcast. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for today's episode. We would like to remind you that we have an episode about anti-Asian sentiment in the COVID-19 pandemic that was released in April 2020 with Peace Lee, Lisa Beeler Ivara, and Oluwatunisin Oradain. You can listen now on season one. Thank you for listening to Feminist Talk Religion. 
a Feminist Studies in Religion collaboratory branch project. Feminist Studies in Religion works to center and connect feminists and religious studies through its various platforms, including a journal, books, blog, and lab. We appreciate your engagement with FSR's branches, especially with the lab's podcast, and would love your financial support. You can donate at www.fsrinc.org slash donate. That's www.fsrinc.org slash donate. We wish to express our thanks to all who have contributed to the Feminist Talk Religion podcast. Special appreciation goes to Nayara Leo, Oluwatumisin Oredain, Sarah Emanuel, Midori Hartman, and Susan Wolliver for their leadership and committee efforts. Thanks goes to Sydney Keplin for her editorial work, Thomas Lejoie and Scott Jackson for creating the music used for this podcast, and Kimmy Monty, Christy Cobb, and Owen Cobb for their creative work on intro dialogue. Thanks also goes to the interns at Feminist Studies and Religion, Inc. for their work on promoting this project.